Let me ask you to um, turn to Romans chapter 8. Look at uh, Romans 8, maybe a couple of verses there in the end of Romans 7. There's um, a lot of talk and a lot of ink has been spilt uh, in writing books uh, for for some time now, uh, really on self-esteem and self-worth and self-image, how I feel about myself, how I perceive myself. And, And most of them, I think, begin properly with the presumption that the issue first needs to be addressed uh, negatively. We're told that, you know, you have a low self-image or your child uh, has a poor or, or low sense of self-worth. Your spouse suffers from from low self-esteem. And, and uh, sort of look at the culture around us, and it's easy to understand why this is a, a national and, and cultural problem. And I think part of it is because we've just been been bombarded with excellence, uh, not only technical precision and specialization uh, in this 21st century, uh, but it also comes to us, I believe, uh, from advertising itself. Uh, uh, you may remember the Super Bowl only uh, uh, a few weeks ago now, but I I saw a piece uh, on the television about the making of... Super Bowl ads, um, uh, you know, behind the scenes of these commercials that were being prepared to air uh, on the Super Bowl broadcast. Um, and it was just amazing to see how uh, a 30-minute commercial was made, uh, 30-second commercial <laughs> was made. Uh, be even more amazing if they could do that in 30 minutes, but uh, 30 seconds. Um, it's uh, it's sort of unbelievable that we don't buy more things and we aren't more uh, materialistic uh, than we already are uh, because the excellence, the, the thought, the marketing strategy, the money, the science, the expertise that goes into making those 30-second spots uh, is really something. Every word, every color, every article of clothing or lack thereof Every gesture, every movement, you know, has been perfectly uh, choreographed, not only by a, a, a battery of movie directors uh, and, and, you know, film professionals, but by psychologists who have been hired to test and, and to examine how, how words come across and the inflection and the um, uh, color scheme that's a part of the advertisement and um, and how this will impact the people who are watching these things. And phenomenal uh, sums of money are made not only in crafting the spot, but then, uh, you know, what the network is charging um, uh, to put that on primetime television, uh, again, because of the incredible impact that it's going to have on people um, and how they will act in response uh, to those advertisements. But, but in the process... You know, we are pre- presented with such a picture of excellence. 
perfect looks, perfect cars, perfect couples, perfect families, perfect colors, perfect teeth, perfect hands, perfect bodies. So, you know, we come away with this uh, assault on our senses feeling that I can never measure up to this. I'm, I'm so imperfect. You watch TV for a few minutes and then you go into another room and catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror. It's a depressing kind of thing. Um, and we all feel somewhat uh, lacking uh, in self-esteem, self-worth. And, and most of these books, I mean, you go into Barnes & Noble, Books of Million, any of these places, and there seem to be all these um, uh, sections. Uh, most of these books uh, that are out, even those that, that seem to masquerade as, as biblical teaching on this subject, um, tell us to go after this problem in the all-American way, and that's do something. You know, don't take this laying down. Find some area of confidence. Find some area of specialization and do that. Uh, do your best at that and feel good about yourself and your accomplishments in that era, area. You know, get a new hairdo. Get a toupee. Get a, a new set of clothes. Uh, uh, take a new lover. Uh, suggested uh, in some of these spots. Buy a new car. Get a new job. Feel good about yourself. And of course, the problem is that if we rev ourselves up and, and try to base our sense of self-worth and, and self-esteem on circumstances, if we think what I am, what I am worth depends on what I do and what I have, uh, we're constantly building on what Jesus calls in Matthew chapter 7, shifting sand. Because, you know, we're told in, in sort of these pump-up uh, sales courses on positive and possibility thinking, go in there, look in the mirror, you know, straighten up the knot on your tie and, and convince yourself, you can do this, you can do this, you know, no one can resist you. Go out there and, and close the deal, make the sale. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And then you pass someone and they say, what's up, ugly? And, you know, it's the pen and the balloon and you're deflated and you're back at ground zero. And if you and I want our lives not built on shifting shaky ground and our own sense of whether or not uh, we're at peace within, you know, within our own skin, if we want our lives to rest on something substantial and fixed, regardless of the ever-changing circumstances around us, we do best to look at God's Word. And you may say, you know, I I'm a little familiar with Romans chapter 8. Uh, what in the world does this have to do with a, with a sense of self-acceptance or, or self-worth? And I would say, uh, if this text and this chapter is to be solid and really grip us, um, it must be based on a biblical understanding of who we are. And that, as Paul shows in Romans chapter 7, a person, any person, however gifted, however you know, attractive, who has really come face to face with who God is and who I am or with who you are, uh, if we come to terms with ourselves over against God's perfections, uh, His ultimate holiness, His inflexible righteousness, His, His goodness, His truth, 
We invariably, and indeed the holier we are and the more mature we are in Christ as believers, we are the more we uh, we are the the more we cry out from the heart, as Paul cries out from the heart here in Romans chapter seven, verse twenty-four. Wretched man that I am, man, who will deliver me from this body of death? And even though we see in our hearts what Christ has done, that we've died in Christ and been raised to newness of life, we also see that in the members of our flesh, as Paul says, uh, another principle is at work, warring against the law of God in our innermost being and, and in which we delight. There is this other principle with which we do not, you know, don't want to identify, but a principle of of sort of native, primordial urges, pushing, clawing, scratching to get at the center of our lives to again rule and reign and call the shots. You know, I want this. I need this. I can't be happy unless I, I'm fulfilled here and doing this. And Paul says there is still a, this continuing struggle. The old man in Romans chapter 7, and he cries out in his heart, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? But it's, but it's a, a cry, not of despair, but rather it's a prayer of a person ever yearning for greater holiness and, and greater Christ-likeness because it ends there in chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It doesn't end with a question, but it ends rather with this doxology in verse 25. Those glorious words that he speaks at the end of the chapter. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we read, as we read this section this, this evening, the reason that Paul cries for this kind of thanksgiving and it's because as we uh, look in ourselves and see that there is no ground within ourselves for acceptance from God, or with others, or with even ourselves, we find that God Himself has once and for all decidedly, divisively dealt with this. And we're not to be paralyzed by looking inward. We're to look elsewhere in order to find that acceptance. Um, read with me here, uh, Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The Lord will help us to 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 apprehend and to apply, to apply this portion of His Word. The the preeminent message of this text, I think, is God's acceptance of us, and it lays the foundation for a right understanding uh, of this great need within our culture for self acceptance. And I'd like for us, uh, under just five headings, uh, to quickly move through this. And the first is to see the basis, the, uh, the uh, underpinning of self-acceptance. Uh, 
I know I'm dating myself here a little bit, but uh, um, remember the old Roadrunner cartoons? I used to get up on, on Saturday morning and, and, uh, and, and turn on the television and, and watch these Roadrunner cartoons. And there was this scenario, this gag line that used to be used at least five times uh, every episode of the Roadrunner cartoon. And it was the kind of thing uh, when um, Wiley Coyote would be chasing the Roadrunner and he would run full speed off the edge of the cliff uh, without knowing that he's gone off the edge of the cliff. You remember the scene. His legs are still spinning, they're still running, and all of a sudden he looks down and sees nothing under him, and then his face sort of, you know, Wiley Coyote's an actor, I guess, so he pans to the, you know, to the camera there, or he looks at the, um, at the viewing audience with this pitiful expression, and then he would plummet to the very bottom of the canyon. It usually took uh, several seconds for him to get down there, and then there's that little puff of smoke uh, as he lands at the bottom of the canyon. And that, you know, that sort of never failed to amuse me because, you know, I, I sort of linked up with that. I kind of uh, had, had that experience even as a child, uh, but really didn't quite know how to frame it or, or to talk about it. And this cartoon sort of gave some kind of a symbolic reality to it, and it it, it kind of hurt uh, even as I left. And, and, and I believe that is exactly the way in which most people sort of base self-esteem. What do I do for a living? And that's why, particularly when someone loses his job, it's devastated. Um, who is my family? That's why people are crushed uh, uh, far more deeply than just over a relationship breaking up when a marriage breaks up. We draw our identity from these various, our full identity, from these various relationships of life, relationships with work, uh, with the things that I used to be able to do as an athlete. You know, that gave me uh, worth and, and value and, and built up my self-esteem, all the uh, sorts of things that we identify with significance and, and, and worth. And when we do that, we invariably come to a moment when we're running a hundred miles an hour, our, our, our wheels are spinning, and we look down and realize that there's really nothing under us. And we sort of plummet uh, to the bottom of the canyon. And the first thing that, that we're told here in this text is that the basis of our own sense of self-acceptance and self-worth is to rest outside of ourselves. It is to rest uh, not in the, you know, paralysis by analysis, this sort of endless navel-gazing, this inward-looking at the state of our own personalities or bodies or, or jobs or whatever. And the key to this, I think, is found in this first little transitional word that Paul uses um, uh, whenever... Paul says, therefore, this is hermeneutics, Bible interpretation 101, you know, we should underline it, uh, at least in our mind, if, if, uh, if you're not an underliner or highlighter in your Bible, I don't know why, uh, but uh, uh, we should underline it because what Paul is saying is, you know, I'm about to tell you something that doesn't rest on some kind of 
a mysterious premise. I'm about to tell you something that you're not going to have to wonder, you know, uh, um, how does this come into play or how does this relate? Paul is saying, if you've been listening to all that I've said up until now, now what I'm going to tell you rests on all of that. I've made my case. I've laid the foundation. I've given you a place to stand. Therefore, stand on this principle. And he summarizes, in, in case you know we've forgotten the early part of this letter, uh, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that each one of us uh, is a failure before God. And we look within us and uh, see this, and Paul says, the good news is that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Stop looking at yourself for a basis of self-acceptance and self-worth. And he, and he summarizes the gospel there in verses 2 and 3 in this way. Uh, because through Christ, the law of the Spirit of life, that is the gospel, has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law couldn't do, I couldn't save myself through the law. The law was weakened as a means of salvation by my sinful nature. But God did it. God did it by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering and imputing His righteousness to us. He's saying that the basis of my sense of self-worth is not in me at all, but it's in the perfect Son of God. It's in Christ Jesus. It's not in what I do or have done. It's in what Christ has fully accomplished for me. He did for me what I could never do. He perfectly kept God's law. I couldn't, I can't, I never will completely, perfectly keep God's law. Therefore, the basis of acceptance with God and with self is, first of all, Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. Secondly, He talks about the essence of this of this self-acceptance, this self-worth. And that's found in that tremendous economical phrase there in verse 1, no condemnation. And I wonder if we've really, if we've really heard that in all of its glorious fullness in our lives. No condemnation. What he's saying is that if you and I are in Christ, we can never, ever again come under the wrath and judgmental curse of God. All of the guilt, all of the lament over the past that we can't go back and, and remedy, that we can't set right, all the fears over the future, that great burden that we've carried and tried to suppress has been lifted in Christ Jesus. You and I are guilty before the bar of God. And before God uh, will deal in our lives, he's, He brings us to the point where we're, we're aware and we recognize that guilt. That we stand before the exacting gaze of God and we are guilty. That's the problem, in my opinion, of the of the positive and possibility thinking of, of guys like Norman Vincent Peale or, or, or that theology that might come out of Crystal Cathedral in California. And I, and I don't want to sort of run 
any of these things uh, uh, down. But I do remember um, um, Robert Schuller's book on self-esteem, and it's a book that I think accurately and sensitively uh, sees this need, this this hurt, this cry from the heart for significance and for worth. Uh, but the answer that's given is that you are image bearers. You're created in the image of God, and you are to feel good about yourself uh, because you're an image bearer. And it just fails to take into account the fall and sin and guilt and, and this image being tainted and all things within us that make us unacceptable to God and unacceptable to one another and, and really unacceptable to ourselves. And even though he's, I think, right-hearted in his approach, what I believe he utterly fails to recognize is that apart from the cross of Christ, there's no grounds for self-acceptance. There's no grounds uh, for self-worth. And if we'd say, you know, if we say it's just merely based on the image of God uh, that's stamped on every human being, uh, then we turn the cross of Christ on its head, I believe. Um, you and I deserve judgment. We deserve wrath. But the glorious and amazing thing is that He's not only forgiven us, He's justified us by His grace. He's reckoned not only our sin to Christ, but He's counted all of Christ's righteousness to us. And He looks at us. He looks. God looks at us through those lenses. He looks at us as His dear children that He has purchased at, a, at, a, at, a, at an unspeakable cost. And He loves us. He loves us. Paul says if you are a child of God, there is no condemnation. And no matter what you do, no matter how you fall, you can never again come under God's curse and wrath. Christians are to live in the knowledge of salvation, full and free, not probation. We're not to think of God, our Heavenly Father, as one sitting there in heaven waiting for us to fail and then saying, you know, I can't believe you did that. Off with your head. You know, can you imagine dealing with your own children in that way? Can you imagine a, of thinking of that one who is your child, that one who is yours? Can you imagine saying, now, if you ever break a rule of mine, that's it, Jack. You're out of here. I'm cutting you off. You will no longer be my child. The unbeliever is under the wrath and curse of God because he or she has refused God's grace, his provision for their greatest need. And so the world, uh, the world's feet, as it were, are, are held to the fire of the law of God and and the world has to do with that judgmental terror of God and the law. But as the old Augustus Toplady, boy, I love, I love that guy. Um, uh, he wrote, um, uh, he wrote this particular, uh, uh, these particular lyrics. It's, it's from a great, uh, a great awakening uh, hymn. Um, and, and for the child of God, the terrors of law and of God with me have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood ha hide all transgressions from view. My name from the palms of His hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on His heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. You know, if you belong 
to the Lord God. If you are a child of His by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, nothing will ever sever you from His love. And He's not going to, 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 to call out the law and, and send the fire of His wrath upon His child any more than we do. If our children willfully disobey us, we, we punish them in love in order to get them uh, to stop. And when the punishment uh, has broken their hearts and drawn them back and in tears they say, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We don't say, you know, get out of here and, and go prove yourself to me uh, for some period of time and then maybe I'll love you again. When we finally get their attention through correction, we say, thank God, thank God you're back. Let me hold you, let me kiss you, let me tell you how much I love you. And so the writer of Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 3 and quoted again in Hebrews chapter 12 says to the child of God, don't resist the Lord's discipline. Recognize that when He disciplines you, He's doing it in love to treat you as a child the way that parents do with their children. But as soon as the child repents, the parents stop the punishment. It's not wrath. It's not hatred. It's not getting you back for what you've done. It's loving correction to draw you back to your loving Father's heart. There is no condemnation. Thirdly, what is the time for self-acceptance? Now. There is therefore now no condemnation. And Paul, I believe, emphasizes this because he's going to go on later in the same chapter, in chapter 8, and uh, show us the way of walking in the Spirit. He says that the joy and power will be ours as we begin to learn not to walk, that is, not to live with our minds set on the flesh, but with our minds set on the Spirit. But he wants to make sure at the outset, I believe, you know, that's Paul's great design here. He wants to make sure at the outset that we don't think that God's acceptance of us depends on, on ours always keeping uh, or walking you know, perfectly according to the Spirit. So he says at the outset, to people who have heard the message of justification, there is therefore now no condemnation. Not now, not ever. No condemnation. If you're in Christ, you cannot ever again come under, come under God's wrath and curse. And if that doesn't liberate you, if that doesn't free you, to live for the Lord, then I don't know what is going to. If you don't realize that God has accepted you in Christ Jesus and loves you in Christ Jesus, and that does not become for you the basis of self-acceptance and, and, and self-love in the proper sense, nothing will. Nothing will. Paul will go on later in Romans chapter 8 to say, if God has forgiven someone, if Christ does not condemn, you know, it's this rhetorical question, who would dare bring a charge? Who would dare bring a charge against his children, against the elect of God? Certainly you and I dare not condemn ourselves if Christ has forgiven us. And I'm not talking, please, I'm not talking about being loose with sin. You'll come under your Father's displeasure and 
I bet you most of us here can tell some pretty scary stories of the way that the Lord has spanked us and got our attention. Fourth thing, there's a condition for this self-acceptance. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. To those who are in Christ If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, if you're still trusting in self, if you're still basing your confidence on yourself and your best efforts and your your looks and your wealth and your situation in life and your relationships, all those things, then you have no ground of confidence. You know, you're like Wiley Coyote. Don't look down because it's not pretty. There's nothing there. But if you trusted in Jesus Christ and staked your life in Him, then there's now no condemnation. God has accepted you. God loves you. You're at peace with God through what Christ has done for you. He'll never cast you out. He'll always treat you as a child. And what He's begun in you, He promises to bring to completion. And finally, fifthly, Uh, There's this glorious implication. If Christ has accepted me, not only can I accept myself, but you and I can accept one another and we'd better accept one another and pray for one another and be concerned for one another and, and be able to express that concern and always be reconciled one to another. That's Linda was talking about that uh, even this morning. Because Christ has reconciled us to God. Uh, in Ephesians, Paul would write to there, you know, be ye kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. And do you see this, this lays the framework uh, for true peace, the only framework for peace. And this will at last be known and experienced in its fullness when when Christ comes again in glory and reigns. It will be a reign of peace because He's the God of peace who's made peace with us uh, through His broken body and through His shed blood. So the basis of our self-acceptance is outside of ourselves. It's in the work of Christ. The essence of our acceptance is that there is no condemnation for those who are God's children. The time for self-acceptance is now. Even as Paul would say, there is therefore now no condemnation. Elsewhere he will say, behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, this is the day of salvation. If you're trusting in self, trust in the Lord. Now is the time. Don't place your confidence there uh, in self. That's a... That's a fool's game. That's a wily coyote game. The one condition, those who are in Christ Jesus, you know, are we in Christ? And we trusted in Him and Him alone. Now, this is the day. And the implication, finally, the implication, if God accepted me, I must, you know, sort of stop this silly paralysis by analysis, this perpetually looking at myself to see if I'm all that I want to be, and to realize that I'll be liberated to be so much more when I get my eyes off myself and get my eyes and fix my gaze on Jesus. 
Who is my righteousness, my healing, my joy, my hope? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we praise you for this truth. That all who are in Christ Jesus are accepted in the beloved. And I praise you for the, the reconciliation that Christ has worked. But my praise is so weak, O oh God, if, if my salvation rested on my gratitude and my praise, I'd be lost. But even in that, Christ, Christ has covered over my inadequacies, paid the price of my weakness and my failure, and raised me up to new life. And I praise you, Lord for this liberating word that in Christ you've accepted us. May that foundational truth ring in the hearts and minds of each of us here. And may it arrest those who have been complacently trusting in themselves. And may our joy and may our delight ever be in you. Lord, dismiss us to our homes. We thank you for this time. Bless us in the week to come. Use us. Use us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.